you're new here, we've been actually going through a series in the Gospel of Mark. We started this several months ago, almost nine months ago now, and uh, we've been making our way through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've been covering every topic that uh, just comes up in our crosshairs. And uh, last week we touched on a subject that we just looked at briefly, and as the week had gone by, as days had gone by afterwards, I just thought, you know, I, I would like to give a little bit more time uh, unpacking the subject that we started to look at last week. And if you want to understand the context of what we looked at and how we looked at it last week, you'll have to just go online, check out the message online. It's all free. You can just go to our website. It's all right there. Um, but the subject that we're going to be taking a look at today is basically the subject of hell. All right? You're welcome. Uh, most of you are like, I really want to hear a message on hell. And uh, so you get your wish today. So, but no, seriously, what I want to do is, is I wanted to take a look at the subject of hell. Um, for a couple reasons, and I'll just go through this very, very quickly. The idea of the matter is, is this, is that we've been trying to, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we've been taking a look at not only the actions of Jesus, the works of Jesus, but we've also been looking at the words of Jesus. And what we've been trying to challenge all of us with is that if we are really to come face to face and understand what true life is, we have to recognize that life is basically in Jesus. That's what the gospel account is telling us, that life comes through the vehicle of Jesus, not an edited Jesus. Now, what we typically do is we edit Jesus. We take a Jesus that we like, that suits us, and we cut off, shave off, uh, remove some of the areas of Jesus that we don't like. So some of us can make our own, fabricate our own types of Jesus. And what we've been trying to say all along is that if you really want to have true life, you have to let Jesus define for himself who he is. You don't have the right to somehow say, I don't like this about you, I'm going to change this about you. You can't do that. If you are, and if you have ever been in a relationship, you know that you can't do that in any form of relationship. For a relationship to actually function, you have to let each person uh, work in the relationship. Now, there will be contradiction going on, but if you have a relationship with somebody that you do not allow them to challenge you, to contradict you at all, you really don't have a relationship with that person. You need to allow in every relationship for somebody to speak into your life, to challenge you, to question you, to uh, call you to the rug. And if you don't allow that to happen, then you are living in a relationship that's not based on honesty. And if there's no honesty in a relationship, you don't have a relationship because you don't have trust. And so if Jesus, if he is God, if he claims to be who he is, and if we claim to be followers of Jesus, we have to allow this Jesus to define for himself who he claims to be. We may not be comfortable with it. There may be elements about who he claims he is that we're frustrated with. There may be areas in which we look at this Jesus and we're like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I can't figure it out. It's beyond my figuring out, beyond my comprehension, beyond my understanding. And all of those things may be elements that you may need to work through. And if we need to work through within community, that's why we have community groups set up so we can work through these things, press on into these things. But unless we allow or let Jesus be who he claims to be in our lives, and we don't have a real Jesus, we have an edited Jesus. And at the end of the day, if you have an edited Jesus that you've created, then he's not real. And so when you go through tough circumstances and situations in life, which you will, that Jesus you made cannot help you because he does not simply exist. Make sense? So we've got to let Jesus speak to us about who he is, about what he does and what he says and what he teaches to us. So what he has taught to us last week, he begins to introduce to us a subject uh, about hell. 
And I want to spend a little bit more time. We're going to read through the passage that we looked at last week. Last week, like I said, we looked at the concept that Jesus introduced to us more in the context of the larger narrative. But what I want to do right now is more of a topical. It's more of just an object lesson, a study on the concept of what hell is. It is what the Bible describes. Um, it, it's a topic. It's a subject that's in there. Scholars, theologians describe this as a theological viewpoint that needs to be understood in light of and in the context of the Bible. So that being said, if Jesus is who he claims to be or claims who he is, then that means that Jesus has information about things that you and I simply don't. And if that offends you, if that insults you, you're like, I can't stand the fact that somebody knows more than I do. All right, some of you are like that. You're like, I'm really insulted because somebody else knows more than I do. Um, then at the end of the day, you are God. You are God. That's my point. <laughs> you are God, all right? Like, I don't have any other point behind that. And, and you can't save yourself. Like, you, you don't have the power, the ability to save yourself unless you allow someone who's higher than you, greater than you, knows more than you, has more wisdom than you, more insight than you, to instruct you, and you listen, and you humble yourself, and let him define for himself, then, as God, you will have to save yourself. And you'll find at some point in your life, you can't do that. So Jesus talks to us a little bit about health. And what I want to do is we're going to read the passage that we're going to take a look at in just a second here. But I want to first of all take a look at a couple things because obviously I realize anytime we talk about the subject of hell, um, it's met with a lot of different uh, emotional responses, all right? Most of which, when we think about hell, is we oftentimes have this aversion to it. And I think, to be quite frank with you, for good reason. I want to point out to you at least two reasons that I was thinking about as to why many within our culture, within the westernized culture, uh, just simply rejects the notion of hell. And I think oftentimes it's because it's been caricatured. What I mean by that is if you ever take any concept, any idea, or even a person and you turn them into a cartoon, right, then you basically discredit them to the place where now you can dismiss them. Does that make sense? We do this in relationships. I'll tell you how we do this in relationships. Somebody in our lives, let's say it's an authority figure, they say something to us we don't like, and what we do is we look at this and we think, okay, they contradicted me. Well, they're an idiot. So we're like, I can just dismiss everything else they say because they're an idiot. What you've done is you've turned them effectively into a cartoon character. Now that you can dismiss, because you have more power than them, more authority than them, you're greater than them. That's what you've done. You can dismiss who they are, what they've said, because you've turned them into a cartoon character. But we do this even with biblical concepts. Hell, we turn into a cartoon character. We turn into some sort of a false image that doesn't exist, and then it makes it easier for us to simply dismiss it. In philosophy or in argumentation, we typically call this making a straw man. It's like if you're going to make an argument and you take the argument of the opposing side and you sort of caricature it, you turn it into a thumbnail version, sort of a uh, monochromatic argument, now you've created what's called a straw man. You can blow it over, right? You can flick it over and it falls over. Because in reality, what you've done is that you've not properly represented what you're trying to oppose. We do that oftentimes, and our culture is done that oftentimes with this subject matter of hell. And there's two, at least two different ways in which I think this has happened within our culture. One uh, way I think that we do this is by personal political abuse. And here's what I mean. Is that oftentimes the concept of hell has been abused 
in ways by people who want to sort of monopolize on truth or want to promote their own philosophical ideas or their own agendas. And so what they do, whenever they confront somebody or find themselves confronted by somebody that challenges them or they don't like, they start damning everybody to hell. We've seen this throughout the history of the church. Whenever somebody or particular religion or particular religious background or denomination uh, involves themselves with somebody that they don't like. This is what the uh, Roman Catholic Church did, for example, with Martin Luther. Didn't like what Martin Luther had to say, so there was sort of a con- condemning upon him or condemnation to him. But we've seen this all throughout history. So it's not just a Catholic Church. It's not just any other denomination. It's us personally. We can do this personally. We're all in danger of this. And so what happens is the idea or the notion or the concept of hell gets abused by just simply becoming something that if there's somebody we don't like, we just simply say things like, well, you're going to hell anyhow, or you're going to be damned into hell, or I damn you into hell, or whatever. And you hear that enough, and at some point, you just begin to think, it's just a cartoon. It's just foolishness. And so it's easy to reject foolishness. Okay? Does that make sense? Have you guys ever seen that? you ever seen people just simply going around abusing the concept of hell? And oftentimes, rather than looking at hell... And the concept of hell that Jesus is going to portray for us as being something that should be taken a look at and looked at very soberly, it becomes something that just gets abused. We talk about it glibly. We use it in slang terminology. We start damning people to it. And the reality is, is it loses its potency, and therefore once it loses its potency, it becomes impotent. We can just flick it away because it's nothing more than a straw man that we can very simply, very easily dismiss as being non-existent. Second way in which I think, and one of the reasons why I think we reject it, again, I would say this, nobody actually articulates it this way, but I'm going to describe it this way, is that there's a cultural rejection of hell, I think, personally, because it's not properly centered on Jesus. What we're going to find in the passage here is that Jesus actually takes this concept of this disintegration of hell, and he places it or centers it around himself. I'll describe what I mean by that by the end of the message, all right? The idea is that Jesus basically says, yes, there is a place or a state or a condition of great suffering and disintegration, but there's a way out of that. There's a way around that, and he begins to define a way out of that, around that, by himself, through himself, okay? So, again, like I said, most people do not think of hell in the context of Jesus, and when it gets abused... When it just simply gets caricatured, when it becomes parodied, it loses its functionality, it loses its potency, it loses its power, and it becomes something that we just don't even want to talk about anymore, or becomes something where if we do talk about it, it's sort of a little bit of an embarrassment. It's kind of like, oh yeah, that's, that's the theological concept that we just keep in the closet. We don't want to talk about it because we're a little bit embarrassed about it. And if we understand the Bible, if we understand the gospel, we have to understand the concept of hell. Jesus talks about it. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than any other New Testament writer. For the past week, I spent a lot of hours studying the subject, reading, listening to, researching, reading every passage in the Bible that I can about hell. The Old Testament equivalent is Sheol. In the New Testament alone, depending upon the translation you have, it appears between 70 to 72 times. The majority of those times actually come out of the mouth of Jesus himself. The Gospel of Matthew has the majority of the usages of the word hell. The second uh, largest passage that's outside of the Gospels, or second largest, second largest, largest book that has majority of passages about hell is the book of Revelation. Hell is spoken of many times in the New Testament, the majority coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So if Jesus is who Jesus claims he is, 
then he has something to say about something that some of us might find embarrassing. But if Jesus is who he is, and we don't want to somehow fall danger, fall prey to editing a Jesus, we have to let Jesus speak openly and honestly to us about subject matter that we have maybe come to find uh, discomforting, or we may have come to find maybe even a little bit embarrassing. What I'm trying to challenge you to think about, though, is don't let the way the culture has come to view this subject of hell because of the abuses of hell be what defines it. Let Jesus define it for you. So I'm trying to invite you, bring you in to let Jesus sculpt and shape our thinking and understanding about this very important subject of hell. That's where I'm trying to go to. The second thing I want to take a look at very quickly before we jump in and read the text is I want to take a look at some, uh, what I'll just describe as speculative misconceptions. What I mean by that is in the Bible, when we read the Bible, we have speculation and we have uh, revelation. And what I mean by that, for the most part in this world in which we live, we have people that speculate on things, people that just simply say. So anytime, all of us are speculators, by the way. You're like, ah, oh, I think I knew a speculator once. That's yeah, you. You are all, we are all speculators. Some of us at one point, if, if you've ever, someone has asked you a question, you're like, well, I think it's this. Um, you just speculated. Unless you can put a verse to it and say, well, God said this through Jesus, whatever. If you just speculated. We all do that. All of us have been guilty of that. Some of our ideas, speculation, have never been made into a book or created into a religion or gone viral, all right? Because we're not that smart, some of us. Some of us are really smart, but others of us throughout history have speculated and their ideas have gone viral. We call those false religions, all right? That's what I'm trying to say. So there's at least four different ways in which there are speculative misconceptions about the afterlife or what happens when one dies. I want to go through these very quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I want to at least address them. First of which is what we would describe as reincarnation. In reincarnation, it's the idea that the soul after death begins a new life in a new body that might be an animal, might be a human being, and it's based upon uh, the moral quality of its life in this current life. So in other words, Depending upon how good you are, how moral you are, the way you live, how upright you are, how nicely you treat other people, uh, what comes around goes around, the idea of karma. So who you are in this life morally will affect who you will be in the next life. If you're really bad, you might get demoted to be something lesser than human in the next life. Now, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to simply say this. To be quite frank with you, this sounds to me a lot like a perennial hell. And here's what I mean. The reality is anybody that's forced to live according to some particular moral standard has already found themselves locked into an oppressive master. Who can live moral lives? Like we try. And so either what happens is if you're going to yoke yourself into this idea or ideology or religion that says, I'm going to be as moral as I can, at some point you will hit the wall, and you will hit the wall as either becoming full of despair because you realize I can't be moral can't be moral. Or you will think you're moral and you become very prideful and arrogant. And you look at everybody else who's immoral as being perverted and lesser than you or subhuman or somebody that can be caricatured and dismissed. You become prideful and arrogant. So, again, reincarnation is one of them. Second of which is purgatory. This idea oftentimes is associated with Catholicism, although it does have roots in other sources. But purgatory basically goes like this. Depending upon how you live in this life, in the next life, after you die, you will spend several hundred, several thousand, 
years going through a process of being purged. That's the word, root word for purgatory. You'll be purged. And it will be sort of like a semi-torture. It will be like a fires of purgatory. Um, and it will purge you. It will rid you of sin, sinfulness, sinful proclivities, and get you ready for the after, afterlife like a paradise or a heaven. The third of which is this idea of called annihilationism. And this notion, this idea basically teaches, and there's a lot of, and I would even say probably out of all of these, this is one that at least oftentimes for the most part is, is heralded by Godly, some godly men who actually hold very highly to the Bible. Some examples of this would be a guy by the name of John Stott. Uh, he went on to be with the Lord uh, not too long ago. Another guy named uh, Dr. Edward Fudge. These are, uh, he's a scholar, uh, values the Bible very highly. He's a great professor, great teacher, loves Jesus. And, uh, but he has and holds this view that one day, at some point in the future, we don't know when, God will just simply obliterate and annihilate. And his idea, basically, in short, comes from this concept that uh, once you put a log in the fire, at some point that log will just simply be consumed to where the log is no longer log. It doesn't have values of log. It becomes fire. It becomes one with the fire. It sort of annihilates itself. This is the belief called annihilationism. To be quite frank with you, there's some appealing arguments with regard to this. I personally would love for this to be true. I would. I, I would love, if this, if, if out of all these, I, this, if this was true, I would love it. But at the end of the day, I, I, I don't know, conviction-wise, I can go this route because of other passages in the Bible. Out of all of these possible, plausible, after-death circumstances, this would be the best. But the fourth of which is what's called universalism. It's the idea that at some point in the future, there's a future state where God will basically take all that have fallen, all that have sinned, all different types of sinners and wicked people, and somehow rehabilitate them, redeem them, and there will be sort of a uh, unification of all evil, all evildoers, all wicked people who will be rehabilitated, and there will be some, something like akin to a large uh, family reunion in which God will somehow redeem, save all universally. Um, I don't feel like there's really much in the Bible that's going to support that, okay? So this leads us basically to the next thing, and I want to jump into the scripture now, which is I'm going to simply describe as revelation. This is Jesus speaking to us, okay? I want you to open your Bibles right now to the book of uh, Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick it up this morning somewhere around verse 42, um, and we're going to go down to about verse 49. What I want to say with regard to this is that if Jesus is God, if Jesus is who he claims, then that means that Jesus did not originate at birth in a manger from Mary. Jesus actually predates Mary. And this is what the Bible teaches us, that Jesus lived, he existed long before, throughout all eternity past, because he's God before Mary. So Jesus, what this means, is that he knows things that we don't know. There's information that Jesus has that we, we just don't simply know. We're not privy to. And so what that means is that we are desperate for what we would describe as revelation. I'll give you an example. If you've never been to New York City, someone came to you and you're like, hey, I went to New York City. It's amazing. There's people who talk with thick accents, and there's pizza places all over the place, and you know, there's this thing called the Statue of Liberty. Most of us would not be like, no, I don't believe you. I absolutely, I think you're lying to me. You're pulling my leg. Like, you can't be honest. And most of us would be like, oh, yeah, I, I believe you. I believe you. Because we 
is, have either seen pictures or images of it on the news, or we've heard about it or seen it in the movie, or we've seen Elf because we're like, oh, Elf, that's where Elf went, Buddy Elf. He was in New York City. Or we take it on the basis of the fact that this particular person is trustworthy. We trust them. We have no reason to doubt their authenticity. We trust them. The same is true with the Bible. That if we believe Jesus to be who Jesus is, that means that Jesus knows things that we don't know. He's been places that we have never been. He has insight and wisdom that we have never gained, never had access to. But he comes to us and he speaks and he reveals to us certain things. And so, therefore, it's really our response, our just response would be to believe him, to trust him. So if Jesus comes and says, I'm God, we trust him. If Jesus comes and says, there is a place, a state, a condition, a pure destruction, do we believe him? Or will we allow the cultural misconceptions to define us? So what I'm trying to say, don't make the error of creating an edited version of Jesus. Paper cutout. Let Jesus be Jesus. Let him be king of all things. So I'm going to let Jesus speak. We're going to take a look at Mark chapter 9, and we'll take a look at three things uh, about this. So the first of which, in verse 42, I'm going to pick it around verse 42. I think the screen might start a little bit later, but you can start at verse 42. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if he had a great millstone tied around his neck and cast into the sea. So first and foremost, Jesus is going to say that what he's about to describe now in terms of hell and destruction is that it would be actually better for someone to die a horrific death than to go to the place where he's about to describe. This is how crazy it is when you think about this. Now, none of us want to die. None of us want to die poorly. I mean, death obviously is natural, but the reality is none of us want to die a horrible death. And, uh, but the reality is Jesus paints a picture. He says, it'd be better for someone to die a horrific death with a millstone tied around their neck. It's like taking a Volkswagen bug, although I think they float, uh, and tying that to your neck and throwing you into the ocean. So a floating bug isn't going to help. But uh, just take a millstone, for example, all right? A big, heavy, weighted stone that weighs 2,000 pounds. Tie that thing around your neck and throw you into the depths of the sea. That'd be a horrible way to die. Jesus is basically saying it'd be better for you to die that horrific death physically than to cause someone to sin, which ultimately would lead to a place of extreme eternal punishment, okay? Suffering. Verse 43 says this, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have two hands and go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It'd be better for you to enter life lame than have two feet thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter in the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm going to pause right there and stop. The point of the matter that Jesus is saying is that there is a place and there's a condition. And scholars have always debated, I think it's probably both. It's the place that also involves, envelops this condition. Place of suffering, place of destruction. And Jesus is saying it's real. Now, what we need to be able to see with regard to what Jesus is saying here is I think there's two different ways that we can oftentimes view what Jesus is saying. And typically, or historically, when we caricature hell, what we typically do is we hear Jesus giving threats. What I want to encourage you to think about when Jesus speaks about hell, don't view it necessarily as much as a threat as view it as a warning. 
And the distinguishing factor that I want to make with regard to this is that the, the difference would be this, this. A warning is good. If there's something that's truthful, if there's something that's really out there and you know it's out there, you've seen its effects, you've watched it destroy others, and you, out of love to those that you are communicating this to, and you tell them, don't go there. Watch what you're doing. Be careful about your life. If you have to cut your arm off, it would be better for you to cut your arm that's causing you to sin than to be cast into this place, to go there. What you need to see is Jesus is giving warnings, and he does this oftentimes. Like I said, all the gospel accounts reveal Jesus speaking more of hell than anybody else. And really, in every single one of these, and in the majority of all of these, it's viewed as Jesus giving more of a warning as opposed to a threat. And oftentimes, here's what I think, is when we think of hell, we think of hell as being this place with high walls, or we think of hell, again, here we go into our caricature type idea, so we think of hell like the pit of despair in The Prince's Bride, right? It's this place that's kind of underneath the earth, it's submerged, right, subterrain, and uh, it's filled with all of these contraptions that are like torturous, right? You go there, you kind of find yourself a spot where you're going to be tortured throughout all eternity on some sort of machine that stretches you out limb by limb for all eternity, some sort of weird torturous equipment. That that's where God is going to consign you to torment, to torture you throughout all eternity in this particular sense. Again, these are ideas that are oftentimes more developed through like Dante's Inferno than they are sculpted and shaped by Scripture itself. So what I want for us to really understand is that Jesus is giving us a warning. He's telling us there is a place, there's a condition, there's a state that if you're not careful, if you don't take special pains to watch your life, to observe who you are, what you do, what you become, and you center this around me, if you're not careful to see this, then these flames will destroy you. They will consume you like they've done many, many others. And either Jesus knows about this and he speaks truth, or Jesus, we can just simply put in the class of being just a teacher that made errors on certain things. But again, when we do this, we basically pull away the important elements of what Jesus came to do, which we'll take a look at in a moment here. So what I want to do is I want to basically take a look at three things, the first of which, in terms of all of these, is that Jesus is warning his people. He's warning those that would listen, warning those that belong to him. And here's what he's saying. The first thing he wants us to understand is that hell is a place or a state of separation. Now, sometimes people argue, is hell really a place in which we're separated from God? And the answer that I would typically give is yes and no. Right? What? All right. Let me explain. I'll start with no. No one can flee from the presence of God ultimately ever. This, this is the point of one of the psalmists where the psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the highest heights, if I go to the lowest depths, you're always there. So in a very real sense, no one can ever truly, fully escape the very presence of God. But the reality is, is that the Bible does describe or speak in terms of some form of separation. Take a look at 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I'll just read it to you. It says this. They, Paul writes, will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So most scholars, most theologians, most people who read the Bible, Bible students would look at this and just think what Paul and Jesus, I think, are really trying to say is that there is some sense where we are separated. Those are separated from God, from life. Let me try to break this down for you as best as I can. If God, the Bible says, 
God is light. God is light, and in Him is life. In God's presence is fullness of joy. In God's presence is love. All of these things that we long for. Jesus would go on to say, and he uses this metaphor of darkness, which is another metaphor that Jesus uses. Uh, Jesus uses the phrase in Mark chapter 9, verse 43 and 45, and then 47. He talks about cutting off, separating, removing, casting out. These are the ideas that something is going to be removed and separated or pushed off to the side. Okay, so the idea is that there is some form of separation that will end up happening. But again, here's what you need to understand is that in God's presence is life and light. So all Jews, when they think of, for example, the metaphor that Jesus uses of darkness, he describes there will be outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible describes a lot of different types of weeping. There's weeping for joy, right? And you know this. We've all been in places where you kind of like weep for joy or there's weeping of sadness. But then there's weeping of gnashing of teeth. What does this mean? Well, in the book of Acts, it describes a group of people that were listening to a sermon by a guy named Stephen. And they did not like what Stephen was preaching. So these people were grinding their teeth at Stephen. The idea of grinding one's teeth is the idea of pure anger. It's grinding teeth. But it's weeping associated with this grinding of teeth that the Bible describes as out of darkness. If God dwells in light, and light is synonymous with life and honesty and beauty and color and goodness and purity and all of these other metaphors that we love to embrace, then the opposite of light would be darkness. And in darkness is isolation. In darkness, one loses their identity. In darkness, one doesn't need a name because no one can see you. They can't identify you. They don't know who you are. And if the Bible, and as the Bible speaks of this, the Bible says that we were created as image bearers of God. In other words, in our lives, in us as human beings, God stamped his image in us. But here's what's happened. Because of sin, because that sin continues to perpetuate itself in all of us, we all live in this, there's this tendency inside of us that basically says, I don't want God. I will push away from God and pull away from God. I don't want his image in me. I don't want to be associated with God. I don't want God governing me. I don't want God's word in my life. I don't want somebody out there to speak into me, to guide me, to counsel me, to coach me, to lead me. When one lives like that, when you pull away from this God, you're not pulling away more into life and freedom. You're actually pulling more into the path of death and bondage. Let me tell you about a lie that we all believe. We believe this concept that basically says independence equals freedom. We believe that because our very country is built upon that notion, right? We're going to be celebrating it Wednesday. Call it Independence Day. But we also call it a day of freedom. And we think that somehow, by this lie, that independence equals freedom. This is not true. The Bible does not teach that independence equals freedom. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible teaches that when we make ourselves independent, when we become the king of our own lives, the queen of our own lives, the captain of our own ship, the master of our own fate, we don't find freedom, we find bondage. It's by us losing our independence, or better yet, surrendering our independence to the one who made us. 
that we actually get our identity back and we find freedom. Some of you haven't figured that out yet. Some of you still think, you believe the lie, that the more independent you become, the more you can do things on your own, the more individual that you become, the more free you become, and you've discovered that it's a lie. That's not true. This past week, I took my family. We went to go see the movie Brave. They're driving. And usually what I like to do with my kids afterwards, and what we did the next day, is we always kind of talk theologically about the movies. All right? I do that. I've done that with my kids since they were very, very young. And uh, what we do is we talk about, like, well, let's, let's talk about theological principles in that movie. Because I don't want to isolate my kids from culture because there's no way that they're going to fully uh, learn how to think critically about culture. I want them to think critically about it. And I want them to think gospel-centeredly about culture. So I ask some questions. And really, the main premise of the movie, in a lot of ways, is there's a girl. She is a princess, uh, queen in training. But she doesn't like that. She wants independence from that. So she sets out to, to free herself. She wants freedom. She wants to go shoot a bow and arrow, right? She wants to go hunt. She just wants her freedom. So what she does is she, is she, at the beginning of the movie, is out on the quest to discover independence, to free herself from her mom, from her dad. And she conveniently finds a wicked witch who gives her a potion that promises, here's your path to freedom. It ends up leading her down a path of pure destruction she wasn't prepared for. But this is the lie that we've all believed is we've convinced ourselves that the way I will truly find freedom in this life is to be my own person, to be free, to be independent, to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, independent of my family, my spouse, my father, my mother, children, my church, community. And what you will discover is it doesn't lead to greater freedom and light. It leads to greater darkness and destruction. You can see this in little kids. Last year I went camping, and I was with my good friend. And across the way, there was a camping site, and they had a dog, all right? They had a little child. I think back then it might have been like two. And, you know, little two-year-olds, they're always very curious. They're always looking at other things, and he's like, you know, wanting to walk over there. And he kept it. And there were times, like, I would just watch him. He'd just stand there at the edge of our little campsite, and he'd just, like, sit there and look at the dog over there. And you know what he's thinking. He's like, i got to get over there. Like, freedom. Freedom is found hanging out with dog in other campsite, right? So he's just sitting there, standing, and he knows he's not allowed to, like, cross the line because, you know, dad just gave him stink eye, right? And so he's standing there, and then all of a sudden, uh, dad turns his back, and, and we're like, where's Asher? Like, oh, my gosh. Asher is actually across the way, right there, just about to touch the dog. This is not good. Someone's got to go rescue him. So dad goes out and rescues Asher and saves him, all right? But the problem is, is that in Asher's mind, he has this idea. Freedom, expression is found by doing what I want to do, not listening to dad. Thankfully, it wasn't a rabid dog. That would have been a bummer. But the reality is, is we carry those same traits on into adulthood. We all have the same idea. We all have the same concepts that are constantly at work in our life, in our mind, telling us that true freedom is found by doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, where I want to do it, with the amount of money that I want to do it, or with the amount of people that I want to do it with, independent of God, independent of the conscience that God's given me. And that will lead, as Jesus describes, to a darkness, a darkness that will destroy Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, I like this little statement, he says, gaslight is the best nocturnal police. 
In other words, I can imagine him writing this and just looking outside. Maybe there's a bunch of hoodlums in the neighborhood. And he sees there's no, like, thievery. There's no fights, no gang fights going on underneath the gaslight. Why? Because it's lit. Where are all the fights taking place? Down dark alleys. The idea is that in light, sin, rebellion, oftentimes gets exposed. So people don't do sin oftentimes in the light. It's in the darkness. And so the picture of the matter is that Jesus basically, I think, implying or saying is that hell is a state or a place of separation, being cut off, darkness, isolation, dehumanization, where one becomes nameless or identityless. That's what ultimately this state will, will bring about. Because let me explain it this way. In this life, there are elements and traces of God's presence that we feel and see on a daily basis. I'll give you a couple examples of those things. Love. If you've ever fallen in love, if you've ever felt love, if you've ever had peace in your heart, if you've ever had a sense of like, just breathe a sigh, maybe you're like at the end of the, you know, a cliff overlooking the ocean. You're like, oh, this is amazing. You just breathe in like the, the cold chill of like the ocean air. You're like, oh, this is, this is amazing. This is peaceful. This is a sense of, who God is. It's not God. The ocean is not God. We're not pantheists, but God is peace. God is love. And when we sense any form of peace, any form of love, any form of grace like this in this life, all of these are echoes of our creator God. And to set out demands in our heart that says, I don't want anything to do with God. It's to not walk away into freedom. It's to walk away into darkness. Where there is no love, there's only selfishness. There is no peace. There's nothing but anxiety. It's the opposite of light. That's what Jesus says. It's what he would describe as it's a place of separation. J.I. Packer, scholar, said this. Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. The reality is, is that Jesus says hell is a place of separation. The second thing I want you to take a look at is hell is a place or a state of disintegration. Now, the way that we get to this, again, is Jesus uses these metaphors, these pictures. We saw this last week, and I'm not going to go into a lot this week, but Jesus describes hell... And he says, um, uses the word hell, but the Greek word that he uses is the Greek word Gehenna. Uh, in and south to the south of the city of Jerusalem was a little place called Gehenna. It was a valley of Hinnom. And it was in the valley of uh, Gehenna, or valley of Hinnom, that basically it was, a, it was a trash heap of the city. So it was a place where people would take and depose, uh, dispose of, of dead bodies um, that, were, that died without any form of honor. Because if it was an honorable death, you would, you would go through a proper burial. But if it was someone who was dishonorable, you just dump the body out there. Uh, you would take your trash and throw it out there. And as a result, you have all this decomposition going on with bodies. It smelled. And to sort of, sort of overcompensate for the decomposition of the bodies, they would set these little fires and all the trash would burn. So you would have this kind of smoldering, smoky, burning, constant, ongoing smell and just disintegration and disgusting this right there. It was like the place, like I said last week, you don't want to go move, all right? It's like that's not where you want to have your honeymoon in the Valley of Hinnom. It's a horrible place, and it became the picture in which Jesus describes this is what hell is. It's like 
So sometimes people ask, is hell literally fire? Is hell literally outer darkness? Is fire literally a place where worms don't die? And my answer typically is, I think it's metaphor. I don't think it's literal. Sometimes people freak out. You're like, well, wait a minute. No, no let, me, let, me, let me say this. Because the reality is that Jesus uses metaphor or idiom. And anytime you see metaphor or idiom in the Bible, it's usually, it doesn't help the problem. It doesn't cause the, the issue or the weightiness of hell to go away. What it does is it actually ratchets it up even further. It causes us to realize that it may be even worse than what we've ever even expected. Because if hell, like Jesus says, is a place where the worm doesn't die, is a place where there's the fire consuming, is a place where it's outer darkness. And if these aren't literal, then they're metaphor for something far worse, far more disintegrating, far more destructive, far more corrupting. So with that being said, it's a place of disintegration. Jesus uses a couple metaphors, one of which is hell. Or I'm sorry, fire. Fire is really, I think it's an appropriate metaphor because whenever you look at a fire, fire basically destroys, it consumes, it disintegrates. Um, and really, look at it this way. In, and as being image bearers of God, God created us originally, in the garden at least, Adam and Eve, to be integrated wholes. The opposite of being integrated is disintegrated. Disintegration. Now all of us, we get another word from that, is integrity. And we look at anybody in this world, and we say the people that we're going to trust are the people that have integrity. So if you're somebody that has zero integrity, you're the type of person that nobody's going to want to trust. So if you realize you have that stigma, you're going to do everything that you can, take classes, get books, do whatever you can to somehow become a person of integrity. Because nobody wants to hang out with a dude or a girl who is and has zero integrity. But what the Bible is going to describe is that what hell is, is it's like a fire that disintegrates. And if you ever set around a fire, you just look in the fire and it smolders and it takes whatever's in there and just burns it. It consumes it. This past week, I was doing some yard work uh, and in the, my backyard, I had a huge mint plant and it was getting kind of nasty and had this kind of rust stuff on it and I did some research on it and come to find out that it had some sort of like a fungus, I think a rust fungus or something like that. And it says the only thing that you can do is uh, pull it out and then burn it. I'm like, sweet, I love fire. Like, I'm going to burn something. I get the, I mean, Google told me to burn something. This is really good. So I, I yet, you know, yesterday I, 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 I pulled it out and I built up the little mound and I started all these little fires, these little flames in it. And it just started burning for like an hour and a half. It just smoldered. Just like smoke coming out of it over and over. I'm like, this is awesome. So I go mow the lawn and push this thing around. And, and you know, a couple, you know, I don't know, 45 minutes later, I noticed like the flames start coming out. The flames just started getting bigger and bigger. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I love fire, you know? Every boy, like, loves fire. So I'm, I'm watching this flame just build, but it just went on. I mean, it, and then finally I was able to put the fire out, but it still smoldered for like almost two hours. The thing just kept smoldering. And I realized once I'm done with my yard work, I can't keep it smoldering. Otherwise, I'd burn my house down, which isn't good because I rent. Um, and so I, I was able to put it out. But here's my point. Is, is what, what fire does is it disintegrates. It destroys. Slowly, it just destroys. It takes something and just completely turns it into nothing in that sense. It's a complete loss. Jesus also uses another metaphor. He describes worm. He says it's a place where the worm doesn't die. The worm that's probably being used here is another word for maggot. It's the idea of a body that's decomposing and has maggots on it. That's helping the natural decomposition process going on. This is what's taking place. This is what Jesus is describing. That whatever hell is, whatever and wherever it is, it's like decomposition. It's like losing one's identity. It's like being consumed. It's like 
being destroyed. It's like starting out having the image of God stamped in you and yet through time losing your very identity, losing yourself to whatever this fire, whatever this sin is, it's like becoming one with the sin where you may start out at one point and at some point you become one with this thing. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, where here's what he describes. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that it could stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize or mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. And I want to throw something out to you. We can see those flames at work now. Prove it to you scripturally. Book of James, James says this. James 3, 6. He describes a fire. He says the tongue, it's a fire. And he goes on to say, and he uses the metaphor fire, because what does a fire do? It destroys. It consumes. dehumanizes. It takes something that's whole and begins to break it down into its components and its parts. It destroys it. And what James says, he says the tongue, it's like a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And here's what James says. And it's set on fire by hell. Just think about this. Here's what James is saying. Those flames of fire Flames of hell that will one day be the fate of many. James says we can see those things even today in this life. And James gives the analogy, says it's like your tongue. I want to suggest to you, here's an object lesson. Let your tongue be completely unbridled. Be completely focused on yourself. Just you with no control over it, with you not letting anybody else ever contradict you or correct you. If you say something that's rude or sharp or snappy or barbed, don't ever let anybody else tell you, hey, that was rude, don't say that. Just, just close your ears off to everybody else and let your tongue have full reign of you. No control, no hindrances. Just let it rain. Will your tongue destroy others or build each other up? You will destroy people. This is your pastor's great sin. My tongue is an evil. And sometimes I can say things I regret. Sometimes my tongue can say things that are cutting, destructive, deathly damaging. It's like barbs. It can cut deep. James says it's, it's set on fire by hell. These are the flames of hell coming that are destroying, that are beginning that process of destruction right now, right here in this life. Let me take the analogy and go a little bit further because there's other things that we can use to describe this. Let anxiety, for example. Let anxiety have its full reign in your life. Don't stop it. Don't control it when it arises. Don't think about Scripture. Just let anxiety do to you whatever it wants. 
sit on the couch and just think about all the things that you owe, all the things that you need to do, all the things that you failed to do, all the things that you've done that you shouldn't have done. Just let anxiety take absolute full control of you. You will be destroyed. It's like a fire. It will debilitate you. It will dehumanize you. You will not be able to function because it's a fire that's consuming you. I'll go further. Take bitterness. Let bitterness have its full effect in your life. Don't stop it. Let it keep fueling it. Every time you start finding yourself, pull away from it. Remind yourself what that person did to you again. Just let it keep coming. Keep fueling it. Keep adding that fire, that fuel to the fire. Just let it go. Fan it into a huge flame. The bitterness. What type of a person will you become? You will be consumed. Those are the flames of hell at work in this life right now. Add millions of years to that flame. Add eternity to that flame. Where will you be? You will become one with that flame. You will be consumed. Jesus describes that place of no comfort, no peace, no joy, no hope as hell. You need to see this because these flames are at work in us right now. And this is the important thing that we have to understand that what Jesus is trying to say is that hell is a place of disintegration. Hell is a place of separation. And finally, the last thing I want for us to finish with is this, is that hell can actually be avoided. All of these flames, these destructive flames that are already at work in us now can be avoided. And the way that it can be avoided, the way that this enters back into the narrative, the storyline of the Bible, is that where Mark is taking us on this journey with Jesus, is that you have to see where Jesus is going, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying about himself. And what Jesus tells us about himself is that he has a mission. His journey is a journey towards the cross. And it's on the cross that what happens is that Jesus allows the forces of anti-creation That's what sin is. That's what hell is. It's the forces of anti-creation. God is the forces of creation and of new creation in Christ. The forces of anti-creation are the forces of the devil and of sin, of death. And on the cross, what Mark is going to tell us is that on the cross, what we see is Jesus, throughout all eternity past, has had nothing but intimate, unique fellowship with his Father. But for the first time throughout all eternity, on the cross, Jesus cries out to his Father, and there's silence. There's no response. There's the disfavor of God. Secondly, we see from that the disintegration of Jesus. He was disintegrated, destroyed. He let the flames, the fire of hell, the destruction, sin, mount up on him. He was not sinful. He committed no sin. So what sin is he bearing? He's bearing your sin, my sin. He's bearing the consequences, the penalty that you and I bear, that you and I deserve. The flames that keep coming up, that we keep adding fuel to, the ones that are destroying you, he bore those on himself on the cross, and he was separated from the face of his father. He was disintegrated in the midst of those flames. But miraculously, beautifully, Jesus rose again from the dead. 
and conquered those flames, conquered that death that is at work in every one of us. And what the story of the Bible is, the good news of how God seeks to transform us, is that this king comes, not coming to bring judgment, but coming to bear our judgment. He bore for us what we alone deserve, so that we who know in this life a sense of what feels to be separated from God, although none of you are fully separated from God right now, none of you are. All of us in this life right now, even though you may feel feel really far from God, you're not. God is right near you. In this life, all that we have is a gift from our good God. But Jesus bears all of this for us so that we, who are on this path to total destruction, can be liberated, be set free. This is the good news that Jesus comes to proclaim, that he comes not to bring his judgment, but to bear our judgment for him, for us. Let me put it to you the way C.S. Lewis puts this, and I want to finish with this. And what I want to do is I'm going to actually have the worship guys come on up, and they're going to close us in some worship and sing. And what I'm going to do, as soon as I'm done reading this, I'm going to pray. But if you're here today, and God is stirring in your heart, you feel like God is opening your eyes to see your need for him. And you realize that right now at work in your life are these forces of destruction, these flames of hell, corruption, destruction at work in your life right now. And you realize there is no other source that you can turn to. This is why the Bible is so clear. There is no salvation in any other form or in any other person other than Jesus. You know, you can't just be like, well, you know what? I'm going to become religious, and that'll help push out the flames of hell. It doesn't. The more religious you become, the more full of despair you realize, like, I can't do this. I'm a failure. Or you become very prideful, and that's the flame too. Pride is a flame. Look, the reality is, is that we have all of this affecting each one of us, but Jesus comes to rescue us. And if you're here today, and you're sensing God moving in your heart, opening your eyes to see your need for him. This could be the fact that God is stirring, moving in your heart, causing you to be born again, to open your eyes, to see your need for Jesus. And if that's you, I'm going to just sit up front here, and I'm going to have some of the other leaders. If you lead a community group or you're involved in leading somewhere, I invite you to come on up and just be available to pray for some people. And if that's you and you need someone to pray for you, while we're singing, these guys are playing, I would invite you to come on up. We just want to pray for you. We just want to pray for you. The rest of us will continue to sing, we'll worship, partake of communion as we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Someone once described that what a Christian is, is a Christian is a sinner who's been given the freedom to extinguish the flames of hell. And that's what the Christian life is. That's why when my tongue cuts somebody, I have the power in me to repent. It's a grace from God to allow me to repent. It's a grace from God to allow me to seek forgiveness. It's a grace from God that allows me to be washed and cleansed by Jesus' grace. It's the power of God at work in me to help cause me to, rather than using my tongue as a barb that causes pain and hurt in other people, but rather it becomes a tree of life. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say, and I'm done. He says, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels all the way to the very end, and that the doors of hell are actually locked but from the inside. 
they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. In the long run, objectors to the doctrine of hell must answer this question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out the past sins and at once, at all, at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so in the life and death of his son. To forgive them? They are not to be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, that is what God does. Hell, it must be remembered, is not only inhabited by Nero's or Judas Iscariot's or Hitler's. They are merely the principal actors in its rebellious drama. The point of the matter is this, is that you're powerless to push back those flames that are already at work in each one of us. And if you are honest with yourself, you know them, you see them, you feel them, you've sensed them, you've suffered because of them already. But that is nothing compared to what Jesus says it will be like in that time, in that day. This is why we love Jesus. Because Jesus does for us something that we could never do. He rescues us. He frees us. And if God has opened your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, I call you to respond, to trust in him, to place your confidence, your faith in him. And if you are a Christian... I call you, I urge you to see the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus took on your behalf. And that that would rearrange in your heart your affections, that you would love Jesus, that you would worship Jesus, that you would honor Him and sing to Him and give Him your heart and trust Him with your life and trust Him with your bitterness and trust Him with your anxieties and trust Him with your money and trust Him with everything. Give it back to Him. You bear his image. He knows you better than anybody. He created you. He's our life giver. He's our sustainer. Jesus, right now, we just thank you for the cross. We want to worship you. We want to respond. We want to recognize that there is salvation in no other name except in Jesus. Religion cannot save us. Good works doesn't save us. Good intentions cannot save us. Jesus saves us. So God, I pray that even right now in this room that you would transform our hearts to becoming worshipers, people that give you our hearts, give you our lives, our, our lives, give you our love, give you our pain, give us, give to you the things, God, that pain us, that hurt us, that are like forces of anti-creation at work even in us right now, that we would give those to you and trust them back to you. We're going to sing. If you'd like to come forward and be prayed for, the leaders are going to be up here to pray. I'd just love to pray for you.